0: Well, please open with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah chapter 44, we'll begin reading in verse 9. We're going to read together the stupidest chapter in the Bible. But before you judge me, let's read it first and you'll know what I mean. I've spoken with a number of you and you've said that Isaiah is a favorite book of yours. A number of you were going through it even before we started this series and I'm surprised that at how much a favorite this book is to so many. It hasn't been for me. I have not personally spent a lot of time in Isaiah before this series, but I'm delighting myself in it and then convinced that it will be a lifelong pleasure to get to know this book better. So I hope that the series is sweating your appetite. This is the fourth in a five-part series through the book of Isaiah titled, A Vision of Two Cities, and today we learn how, how, the city of sin, filled with sin, becomes the city filled with singing and how we can be found in it. We'll begin this morning, Isaiah chapter 44. Our text will be 40 through 55. Starting in 44 verse nine. All who fashion idols are nothing and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame. And the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in a fire. Over the half, that half, he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. We'll stop there. I have to be honest, I wanna laugh at this guy. In fact, that's actually what we're supposed to do, you're not reading it right if it's not humorous. It's deep sarcasm and of course in his mind, the mind of this man, there is more to it than just a block of the wood, but the block of wood which he crafts with his hands, while it may reference an invisible deity, it is also a deity that has its origin in the mind, in the imagination, in the heart of man as well God is making fun of the absurdity of man-made religion man-made answers to deep human problems what do you need to be happy what do you need to feel accomplished what do you need to feel safe what do you need to feel like a complete human being is it a job is it a house is it a sport is it a spouse is it an association is it your intellect is it a great person, a mentor, or someone you elect? Is it an accomplishment? Is it your bank account? Is it your body? Is it someone else's body? Did you catch the rhymes in there? The first one was an accident, so I thought I would do a second, but then I couldn't do a third, so I just moved on. Is it your sense of humor, your wit, that you can get a laugh? What if you lost whatever it is you're thinking of? Would you come undone completely? What if you lost it and you would come undone completely? That's your idol. What do you look to? To whom do you look and cry out, deliver me? So while this may at first sound like it has nothing to do with us, this picture of a man holding a block of wood is really an illustration of any of us trusting anything besides God. Idolatry says the created is better than the creator. The creature is smarter than the creator. Time is longer than eternity and a lie is truer than truth. And here is the truth. The ability of anything that the hands of man makes is constrained by the limitations of the mind and the craftsmanship and the materials in the hands of man who makes them. So the bad news is these things cannot deliver us in the end. We will die and face God without them and death and the judgment of God is the deepest human problem. But today we will get God's answer to the deepest human problem. Today we will hear good news. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. Those four chapters before. See a few things by way of introduction to this chapter. There is a God who does hear, who can deliver and he is not like anything we would think our ways And thoughts hover at around five and six feet off the ground. The next time you're outside, when you walk out this afternoon, look up at the sky. Then remember Isaiah 55, 9, where God says, For as as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so my prayer for us today as we come to Isaiah 40 through 55 is that we would hear good news, that we would hear it as good for us, And that we would marvel at the height of God's understanding and his thoughts. And as we'll see, his steadfast love to those who fear him. Deliver me for you are my God is something we can say to the maker of the universe and be heard. Isaiah 40 is a place where we hear a promise of a real life deliverance from a larger than life God. As usual... By way of context, in Isaiah, we are often dealing with an on-the-ground context and uh, later an intermingled, a far-off context, a physical context in the world of his time and a deeper spiritual context. On the ground in chapters 39, the chapter before, it closed out with the promise of exile to Babylon. Jerusalem's king had entrusted himself to Babylon and so Babylon, Jerusalem would get Chapter 40 is written to an audience a hundred years after Isaiah's ministry closes out. The audience is Jerusalem in captivity in Babylon with no reason for hope except, except God's word and a promise of deliverance in part through Isaiah. In this chapter 40, which we'll read the whole thing of, verses one through 11 is the promise of that deliverance and starting at verse 12, there's a turn for a description of the deliverer who makes those promises. Isaiah 40, hear God's word. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord Fade And when the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are as grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Up, uh, go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. They are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God or compare what, li- or what likeness compare with him? An idol, a craftsman crafts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and crafts for it silver chains. He, he who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and, by, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right hand is disregarded by my God. They shall walk and not faint. Behold your God. Behold your God. This is God. This is what he is like. In his own words. Incomparable. Incomparably wise. Incomparably great. Incomparably strong. And so behind God's big and lavish promise to God's people in Babylon when everything looks like doom around them. There stands an incomparably big God who will do what he says. Behind his great promises is an incomparably great promise keeper. Well, there are three parts to this morning's sermon following three divisions in the chapters we're looking at today. We'll look at a promise, we'll look at a provision, and then we'll look at a purpose. First, a promise. God will build a highway. He will build a highway. Chapters 40 through 48. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Build a highway for our God. Highways are built for traveling and God is on the move, he will come swiftly, valleys will be lifted up, mountains will be leveled, nothing will stop him from coming, nothing will slow him down, he will make sure that he has a straight line from himself to his people. He will come according to his word. Grass is like most things here in gone. but God's word is not like that at all. He does not make promises because he's backed into a corner or doesn't know what else to say or because he feels bad otherwise. He makes them because he means them and he wants to make them. He purposes to fulfill them and he certainly can. And he will come with strength. The Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. No one or nothing will stop him. And he will come to gather his lambs. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. What a beautiful picture of God coming for his people in salvation. A shepherd gathering his lambs, leading those who are with young. The coming of God is not a reason for fear, fear, but for comfort, comfort. And that's why it's called Good news in this chapter. In fact, Isaiah is the one who coins the phrase or the term. It's picked up in the New Testament and translated gospel. This is good news. God is hitting the road for Babylon to get them and to bring them home to Jerusalem. His words are tender. They are affectionate. They are loving and gentle. So how would God do this? How would he bring this about? The usual way as we have seen through the forces of history. Persia's ruler Cyrus will take Babylon. Hard to imagine at the time, I'm sure, but Cyrus from Persia will take Babylon and then send Israel home to her land. Of Cyrus, God says in chapter 44, he is my shepherd and he will fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Sure enough, In history, Cyrus took Babylon and decreed that Israel would go home to her land and build her temple. And actually, it's this kind of specificity in the prophetic writings, specifically Isaiah, that is the reason why many say that Isaiah could not have had one author, but multiple authors, and the one who wrote this after it actually happened. And of course, this must be true. If God didn't write the book, But if he did write the book and we believe that he speaks and we believe that he can do this, uh, then uh, this is not a problem for us and it's not for me. If the fall of Babylon to a Persian king who would free Israel sounds a little big, well, it isn't. It's big, big, really big. And remember who's saying this stuff. He spent three times as much time explaining who he is after he explained what he's going to do. Look at the world. He measures the water in his hand. He is incomparable in his craftsmanship. Look at his counselors. Where are they? Well, they don't exist. He doesn't Google how to make the world or how to do anything. He consults no one. He's incomparable in his wisdom. Look at a drop of water on the ground. How powerful. Now look at the nations as we combine our smarts and our strength to be as large and as wieldy and as powerful as we can before God, our strength is as a drop in a bucket. It's nothing, less than nothing. Emptiness, God is incomparable in his immensity. And my goodness, look at the stars. He holds all of them up and does not get tired. He never stops for a drink and needs to refresh himself. He knows them all by name. He is incomparable. In his strength. So if they are to doubt that God sees them and is watchful over them. As they look at their circumstances around him. And perhaps you felt that way. Where is God? Does he see? Does he know? Does he understand? Does he care? If they are to feel that. They are to be reminded of who this God is. Also they should remember what he has done before. The language used throughout these chapters reminds us of the exodus. Exodus. And it's actually supposed to remind us of the Exodus. The Exodus is like the template for all of God's redeeming work in the Bible. God has built into Israel's life a pattern and a rhythm of remembering his deliverance of his people from their oppressor, Egypt. And it's the way that they're to look forward and to believe and to understand how he will operate in the future. So we read things like this, he will be with them as they pass through the waters and he says, I give Egypt as your ransom and he says, he brings forth chariots and horse, army and warrior, they lie down and cannot rise. He'll be their rear guard on this journey lead them with a pillar of smoke. All of this is imagery from the birth of the nation and their exodus from Egypt years before. God is hitting the road again. He led them out of Egypt and he will lead them out of Babylon. When God's promises are so great, we have nothing, nothing to compare them to. We remember that the God likewise who stands behind them is so great that we have nothing to compare him to either. These promises really are good news, very good news. But these promises are not good enough, not good news enough. And a thoughtful Israelite would know this. Turn with me to Isaiah 41. Now why would deliverance from their Babylonian oppressor to return to the land that God promised them not be good news enough? Actually, it wouldn't do much for them at all in the long run, believe it or not. And to understand why it's not enough, let's consider who Israel was and what Israel was called to and how Israel was doing. Verse 8 of chapter 41, who is Israel? But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. Israel, Abraham's children, God's chosen, God's servant, What a privilege to be God's servant. A servant is somebody whose purpose serves the purpose of their master, whose pleasure is in the pleasure of their master. And if bad images uh, come to your mind when you think of a servant and a master, it is only because of the sinful world we're in where bad masters exist. This, though, is the benevolent God of the universe. There's a recent book out called The Residence, It's an account of the service staff at the presidents of the presidents of the United States in the White House. It's a neat book. Who wouldn't want to know the accounts of those bellmen and people who worked in the kitchen and took care of 128 rooms and 35 bathrooms, elevators, hard work? What an honor to serve the president of the most powerful nation in history. Being a servant in the house of a good king is no drudgery, but delight, especially if you're chosen for the job. And this, this is Israel's privilege in God's plan. In this way, Israel was to fulfill the original attention for all of humanity. For what are they called to that humanity was not called to? In the garden, God made human beings to serve him in the world, yet we serve the creature instead of the creator. And for this reason, Adam was exiled from Eden. He was sent out from the presence of God. If we would not serve God, then we would not have him either. And with humanity worshiping anything and everything but God, then God comes to Abraham, a man, worshiping false gods, and chooses him and promises that his children will make a great nation and will bless the world. Abraham's children, a nation, God's servant. This is Israel. Turn with me now to chapter 42. Let's keep following this. God through Israel, through Abraham, is as it were starting his humanity project again. What is God's servant called to do? Verse six, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit, in darkness. Through his servant God would bring light to the world. This is her job description. The pay would be the blessing of all of God's covenant promises that he made to her. Set prisoners free, open the eyes of the blind the deaf would hear. These are images that correspond to spiritual deliverance and salvation. But they weren't really any better at serving the Lord than Adam was. And don't worry, Isaiah hasn't forgotten this. The performance review comes in verse 18. Remember their description and now hear their performance. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf that my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one? Or blind as the servant of the Lord? Verse 22. This is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trampled in holes and hidden in prisons. Coming home from Babylon isn't going to fix this problem. And that's why deliverance from Babylon is not enough. And neither is it the point of the book of Isaiah. The problem isn't where they are. The problem is who they are. The problem isn't outside them in an oppressor. The problem is inside them in their sinful suppression of truth and God sin was what landed them in Babylon in the first place the payment for a good job was blessing but the penalty for failing in the context of the Mosaic Covenant was curse exile God's people you will remember from the first horrifying five chapters of Isaiah were flagrant idolaters and sinners cruel to the poor proud in the vomit of their drunkenness making a mockery of God and mocking God to his face Bowing down to idols instead of him, because they don't trust him, but keeping his rituals just to make sure they would feel safe. How presumptuous things were a real mess. Jerusalem in ruins. What would change in returning to the land? Well, without God's intervention in a new and special way, nothing would change. Nothing would change. A thoughtful Israelite will know that return to the land is not enough. And thoughtful people today, each of us, should know that a change in circumstances or scenery will never fix our deeper problems. I mean, you can move the furniture around in the house and you can move to another room. But if the place has no roof, it's still a condemned house. And you're still unsafe. Which brings us to our second section. We've heard a promise and now we hear a provision. A provision. God will crush his servant. God will crush his servant. Chapters 49 through 53. And here Isaiah makes a shift with his focus on the physical, on the ground situation of Jerusalem in exile in Babylon to the spiritual. This doesn't sound like good news, does it? The crushing of God's servant sounds a little, well, negative. But remember our illustration of the path. If you were walking in the woods and you were lost and confused, couldn't enjoy yourself, didn't know where you were at. The path is 15 feet in front of you, running like this. You can't see it until you step on it, and then you can see exactly where you're going, and you can relax and take it in, drink it in, the power and the beauty of the forest. Well, we have found ourselves on a path and it's a path of the servant and we're gonna follow the servant some more. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 49. Let's follow this servant. We'll read at verse five and ask the question again, who is the servant and what does the servant do? So who is the servant and what does the servant do? The servant speaks, verse five. And now the Lord says, uh, the servant is speaking. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, he says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back the preserved of Israel. Well, he's talking about Israel to his servant, and his servant will bring Israel back to him, bring God's people back to God who is this servant it's not the nation it's an individual a person who will bring people to god interesting let's keep reading verse 6 i will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth verse 8 thus says the lord in a time of favor i have answered you in a day of salvation i have helped you i will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear. So this servant, an individual, brings the people of God back to God. Salvation that extends, he says, to the ends of the earth through the servant. And this servant's job, what God will do through him, fulfills all of the requirements that God had on his people that they failed to do. A light to the nations, prisoners out of prison, calling the blind to sight. A true and faithful, righteous Israelite, God's perfect servant. Let's keep going. Turn with me to Isaiah 52, verse 13. Here we have the first of a five stanza song about this servant. How will things go? How will the story unfold for this servant through whom God will bring salvation to the world who is himself perfect, fulfilling all of God's requirements? As we read from here, there may be familiar lines, but I hope that as you start to recognize where we're at in the forest, you see it perhaps with a new depth of beauty and power. First stanza, behold, My servant shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up, he shall be exalted, no surprise. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of man, so shall he sprinkle many nations, kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand." Let's take inventory as we'll do after each stanza. He is high and lifted up. The same description of God in the temple in Isaiah 6. Jesus, Isaiah saw him high and lifted up. He's exalted. He's God's king. His reach will be global and yet he is misunderstood. A shocking sight. Unattractive. Second stanza. How will he be treated? 53, one through three. He's God's arm, God's strength, but no one took him for that. He was born humbly and with an ordinary childhood, not apparently fit for God's king. And so his people, God's people, shunned him, rejected him. For real, God's king, the perfect Israelite, shunned what is going on here. The third stanza will help. It's the middle and, if you will, the center and the central stanza of the song. And it gets personal. Watch the personal pronouns here. Surely, verse 4, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced. For our transgressions. He was crushed. For our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement. That brought us peace. And with his wounds. We are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him. The iniquity. Of us all. Isaiah is saying. A great exchange. Has taken place in this servant's rejection. He takes rightly what is ours, affliction and wounds, and gets rightly, we get rightly what is his, peace and healing. Wow. He, our, we, him. Circle those words. Fourth stanza. Here's how it went down. Here's how his trial went. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of the people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth." Though innocent, he was accused and he did not speak and the verdict was guilty when it was over and the penalty death, he would be cut off from the land of the living. Interesting, the description of the punishment that this innocent servant receives in Isaiah 53 corresponds at some important points to the promise of punishment that God made in Isaiah 6 when he told Isaiah to preach, harden the hearts of the people and that he would make their cities desolate. They would be cut off from the land and not healed. And here, this one is wounded for our transgressions. By his wounds, we are healed. He is cut off from the land of the living and we, the guilty, go free. Something has gone terribly wrong. Something has gone terribly wrong. If you didn't know where the story is going in the Bible, you ought to be very, very confused. Here is God, the king of the universe, with his servant who is perfect, who gets, who gets the punishment that is actually meant for those that are guilty. What could be more wrong than that? The guilty go free. Where is God when this happens? To his servant. Stanza 5, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make the many to be counted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with the transgressors yet he bore the sin of many and he makes intercession for the transgressors. The righteous for the unrighteous suffering death though now it seems alive and prospering and interceding for those he died for. All of this according to God's will, all of this willing Does it remind you of anything? Does any of this sound familiar? Does it remind you of one who suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God? For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him, Jesus Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Folks, welcome to the crest. Welcome to the top of eternity. You can see anything from here. You can see into the heart of God who is anguished in crushing his servant, but through the crushing of his righteous servant makes the many who deserve judgment righteous. And this is really the only way that sinners like you and I, when we die, the real problem and stand before God deserving judgment can get off free. Isaiah in chapter six saw the Lord and all of his holiness in his temple, and he walked out alive because God had taken his guilt away with a touch. And it's because this servant, God's perfect and righteous servant, dies and suffers and bears our iniquities and our sins and our transgressions that any human being will ever go free, and only those who entrust themselves to this, this Savior. Turn with me now to John chapter 12, Verse 27. John chapter 12, verse 27. We've reached the crest of the mountain following the path of the servant, and we're going to hang out here for a few minutes and look around. Here in John chapter 12, we fast forward several hundred years. The scene brings us to the very end of Jesus' public ministry. He's surrounded by a crowd. After this scene closes out, Jesus retires with his disciples to the upper room where they celebrate the Passover from the Exodus and remember God's deliverance. And it's that night that Jesus is arrested. This scene comes at the very end of his public ministry. He provokes a question, he gives an answer, he gets a response, and then John will tell us what it all means. Verse 27, Jesus is praying, Now this is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you might become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. The people here were hearing Jesus exactly right. He was saying, I am the Christ, the son of David, the king long promised who would save and rule over his people in righteousness and he is also saying that he will be killed when he is lifted up he said I will be lifted up and they took that as meaning a sign of his death sort of ridiculous right God's king in weakness and death they couldn't put the two together it's an unattractive combination how how can God's king be killed that's what they were asking In reading what John is writing, how can God's king be so rejected by his people? Fair questions. Where does John's answer come from? John takes us to the book of Isaiah. Verse 37. Though he had done so many many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe for again Isaiah said he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart in turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. How can Jesus be king coming to save his people and yet be lifted up on a cross? How can he save his people and not? Isaiah 53 is the answer. That's precisely how this king will save his people. That's the kind of trouble that his people need rescuing from. But this message only hardens them further as it did in Isaiah's day. Hardens them to the point of killing their own king. And so John quotes Isaiah 6. There God told Isaiah to preach and that God, through his preaching, would harden the hearts of his people. The climax of this hardening leads them to kill their king. But before we say this is the harshest reality in the Bible, and it is harsh, it is also the most merciful reality in all the Bible. For remember who takes the ultimate punishment for the hardening of the people. It's sin in the heart, God brings it out. It's like a cancer can take you quicker, it can be slow, and it can spread, and it can be horrifying. God wants to see this thing go all the way so that we can all see how far it goes. Here's how far it goes. He'll take Barabbas before Jesus. Crucify your king. That's what Jesus is saving us from. And it's precisely at the moment when the worst of human evil is on display, calling for the crucifixion of their God, that kind of hardness of which we were all capable. It's at that very moment that Jesus is himself dying for those who would trust him. Amazing. Amazing. Jesus' death is not proof that he can't be king. Jesus' death is proof that he must be the king. Which is why John says Isaiah saw his glory. That's a fascinating line right there. On the cross, Jesus is glorified. He is high and lifted up. He said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Isaiah 2.2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord Shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. Which brings us to our third section and the third and final point God's purpose. I've seen a promise, I've seen a provision, now a purpose. God will get his praise. God will get his praise. Verses chapters 44 through 55. Many times in this book, God has told us what he is after. What he is after. Isaiah 48. Nine, for my name's sake, I deliver, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. God wants to glorify his name through the showing of mercy on sinners. And he has done that. He has reversed the fortunes of his innocent servant in order to reverse the fortunes of his guilty people. And so in 54, he invites them to do what else but sing. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Get a bigger tent. Get stronger stakes, he'll say. Stretch out your curtains. Your children won't fit. This thing is going global. Your children, you won't be able to count. The promises to Abraham of a nation that will bless the nations is coming about in Jesus After the servant dies in the place of sinners, God makes his people to sing. Remember Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity. Remember how high his understanding and thoughts are? Praise God, that's not all that's so high. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Praise, praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord. Everyone for whom God has dramatically reversed your circumstances on account of the reversal of the circumstances and fortunes of Christ. He speaks in such tender terms. 54, eight. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your redeemer. This is the song of God's people filling the world and flourishing. And they're not just singing. Get this, 54 verse 17. Let's jump back on the path of the servant. Who is the servant? This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Everything that God promises is the heritage of his servants, his people. That's right, they're also now serving. Through his servant, God makes those who repudiated his service to serve him at last, and this is humanity redeemed. This here in this room is humanity redeemed. You and I are not without sin, But as much as we have attached ourselves to God's perfect servant and bear his righteousness and have been forgiven, God has put a song in our mouth and he has made us his servants. What a pleasure. It's through the good news of Jesus crucified, buried, and raised that God turns then the faithless city to a faithful city. It's through the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, and risen, that God makes the blind to see and the deaf to hear. And it's through the good news of Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and risen that God turns sinners into singers and into servants. So are you serving God? Are you first a servant of God? Have you entrusted yourself to his perfect and righteous servant who is crushed for the iniquities of those who trust him? There's a beautiful invitation in chapter 55. Look at it, verse 1. This is for you. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. That's just God speaking to sinners. And if you don't feel you have anything to offer, well, that's good because you're starting to understand the way it really is. We don't have anything to bring to God. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. For those of you who resist Christ still, verse 2, Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? Of course, you can't come and stay where you are at the same time. But but who in realizing what Christ has done and what he promises would want to stay where he's at? Listen diligently to me, he says, and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. And so Isaiah says later, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God." There is no other. To me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. God, this God, is the true God who can hear. This is the God who hears the cries of his people, those who cry out for deliverance and can act. So come to the light while there's time. And if it seems crazy, if it seems too free If it seems too wonderful, if it seems too high, look at the sky. And remember how high God's thoughts are and how high his understanding is. Of course his salvation is higher than our thoughts. Of course his understanding is incredible. Remember who we bow down to, who we cry out to. This is not do-it-yourself religion, this is God does it, all religion, constrained only by the height of his thoughts and the depth of his steadfast love and mercy. So do not look to what you have in your hands. Whatever it is that now you live for won't go with you when you die, and it can't save you in a crisis of death. Look instead to the nails Christ has in his hands where he is high and lifted up, drawing all nations to himself, a king with a crown of thorns enthroned and glorified, where? On a cross of wood for us. This is good news for sinners. From God to whom we cry, deliver me for you are my God. And he can. Let's pray. Father in heaven, these things are are too high for us. We don't even realize how high they are. We're grateful for this word that I pray would open our eyes and awaken us to see what is here, to see Christ as lifted up on a cross and high and exalted and lifted up now at your right hand as king. Our servant who is righteous, who dies an innocent death for the penalty that we ourselves deserve so that while he is crushed, we go free. May we each be found trusting in him this morning and singing to him and serving to him just the same. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.